0: We'll be Chapter 5, starting in verse 21, as we make our way through the Gospel of Matthew. So far, in my opinion, a fascinating book. It's um, it's going to be quite a long-going study, because Matthew's quite long. But it's good, though, because it's a book about the life of Christ, and His teachings, and His ministry, and... And then a lot of very important parts of, and, and elements of being a Christian, we see this throughout the Gospels. So it's something that I think that is good to establish what being a Christian is all about. And also as far as growing as a Christian, um, already, I mean, just the Sermon on the Mount itself. I mean, this is Christ. This is the Son of God. And He knows how to prepare a sermon. <laughs> I mean, think about that. If anybody could prepare a sermon, it's the Son of God. And here he is, and so he's not going to pull punches. He's going to go right to the nitty-gritty, and he's going to do it well. And that's, I think, already what we're seeing as he's introducing elements. First of all, he's looking at people who need to be ministered to, and he's looking at them, and he's telling them, listen, you're blessed. Why? Because God's grace and God's mercy, Jesus Christ is on the scene. God loves them. They must feel like God's so far away from them but that's so far from the truth. In our minds, in our fallen mentality, we can feel, you know, like God's so far and he doesn't like us and we feel guilty, we feel shameful, but Jesus is there going, listen, you brokenhearted people, you sinners, you mournful, you know, this thrashed and beat up people, God's so close to you, his kingdom is at hand and he loves you deeply and dearly and that's how he starts. And this is what Christianity is all about. And it continues this day. It didn't end when Jesus finished teaching the Sermon on the Mount, it still is the case today. And so, I love how he starts that way. He starts with just a blessing. And the blessing isn't hyperbole. It is literally the truth. It is actual and factual. He's not just, he's not just, you know, selling them a bag of ice, you know, to Eskimos. You know, he's, he's literally meaning and saying something that is important, that is crucial, that is substantial to their lives, and it still is to this day. And then he goes on into, um, um, into um, talk about salt and life. So after we've come to realize that we are truly blessed, then we need to put on the, the idea and the truth that we are salt and we are light, which means we make a difference. We do things. And uh, sometimes though, because of various reasons, we don't produce saltiness, or we don't produce light, and that's a shame, because indeed, Christ has made us different, and so for those who have called themselves and consider themselves disciples, who have decided to repent and take the road of the cross, the road of Jesus, we have the opportunity, and we, not just the opportunity, but we are salt and light, and so the more we walk with him, the closer we are to him, the more we are able to access him and his ways and his power and his kingdom, the more we will change. It has nothing to do with waking up and saying, well, gee, today I think I'm going to be a good Christian. And then you wake up the following day, gee, I think I'm going to be a poor Christian. It has nothing to do with it. He goes, you are salt and you are lights. So no matter what, you are going to be illuminating Jesus Christ. You might do it poorly and you might do it richly. But the more you follow him, the longer you follow him, ideally you should be getting saltier and brighter. And now, We get to the next point where he starts talking about, of course, everybody's like tripping up. Like, what Jesus are you talking about? They've never heard any kind of teaching or preaching like this before. You know, what about the law? Because the law is hard. And the law is difficult. And it's binding. And and we hate the law. because, Because the law condemns us. And we know that. Even Paul says that in Romans. The law condemns us. What about the law? And Jesus, you know, he sees that. Jesus might go so far as being able to look into people's minds, not just their expressions, but see their thoughts face to face, You know, because he is, after all, the son of God. And he knows what they're thinking and feeling. What about the law? What about the old school religion that condemns us and brings us down? He goes, I have not come to abolish it. I'm not against it. I'm not opposed to it. In fact, I'm here to complete it. I'm here to fulfill it. And that's massive, because... And again, with this principle, we're going to see Jesus is going to start dealing with daily life, like it says up there, daily life. Now, how do we live? What are some real daily life practical principles and characteristics we can build as Christians? And he's going to deal with that, because it's important. What good is it to just deal with the theoretical? He needs to deal with practicalities as well. And so but he starts by saying this: what I'm going to teach you, what he's going to start to teach us and show us isn't law, because the law is there. And the law is enough. In fact, the law is almost too much there. Because do will forget what the Pharisees and the Sadducees were doing. They were taking the law of God, which started with ten simple commandments, and, you know, and it was expounded on by Moses and the prophets. When the Pharisees and Sadducees came upon the scene, they added another 300 plus precepts to the law. So the law was out of control. So he's not teaching us more laws to live by or not to live by. He's teaching us character. So when we look at these things Let's not think about This is what I do In order to be right with God Okay Let's reckon the fact That we are right with God Now this is how We have character Like Christ So we're not dealing with laws We're dealing with character And we start with verse uh, 21 Uh, Actually we're going to first Start with verse 20 I ended Kind of strategically Last week um, At 20 Because I think 20 Goes right into the next section Really nice So Verse 20 says this For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So righteousness is, is the word that we're going to pick up on here. What's he talking about? He's talking about the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and he's talking about the law. And he, he's, and he knows, and we talked a lot about how they are. They, they had all the theory together, but they fail when it comes to character. And that's what he wants to deal with. He's not interested in, 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 in just getting a bunch of seminary students on the go. He wants people with character, people with hearts. And so the righteousness is a big part of it. The, the word is dikaiasune um, in the Greek, which is a big word. This is the word, this, this, is, this is the principles that, that Socrates and Plato struggled with. The, have you ever heard of um, Plato's Republic, which is better called the city? These books were all about dikaiasune. All about this idea which we translate into to righteousness. I also have another uh, paraphrased definition of what this could be called, and that's up there on the top. It says, What that is about a person that makes him or her really right or good. In other words, it's true inner goodness. So I think everybody in the world wants to have this true inner goodness. It was the case in Jesus' time for hundreds of years before even Jesus came. Philosophers were trying to find um, Aristotle when he came about, he changed it to um, what we would currently call virtue today. And so, a lot of um, you know, philosophers who would study um, and deal with specialized in, in, in ethics and morality will talk about virtues. Another way we can translate Daikosune uh, is justice. You know, so we'll talk about Plato's justice or Aristotle's virtue. But Jesus, in how we translate it in our Bibles, is righteousness. So those are different ways we can look at it, but this is a good way of thinking about what is being spoken of here. It's a, it's a thing in a person that makes him or her right or good. Okay? Um, and, and that's what he's saying. He's like, what, what is it then? You know, is it knowing the law or is it its character? So, if you give us the next slide, please. We can go on. In verse 21, it says this. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. And that is from the Old Testament. In Exodus, it says, do not murder. That's the law. Do not murder. And people lived by that law. But again, Jesus isn't talking about law here. He's talking about character. So, you've heard it said, do not murder. But we're going to deal with something deeper. We're going into the heart and into the soul and the bowels of a person because anyone who murders will be subject to judgment but I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment again anyone who says to his brother is an answerable to the Sanhedrin but anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell so again the Old Testament says don't kill don't kill Jesus isn't giving us a new law, he's giving us the heart, character of God. And this has always been the case. To to, to give a law is one thing, but but God's character, God's heart is as of this. God, and we're going to see God's character, I think, in these verses as we dissect him and look at him, how he gave us something that we don't deserve. Again, this is the heart. We're going to see the heart of love, the heart of compassion, the heart of mercy in these verses. Especially as he goes on in 23 to to conclude this thought. So the old way says don't kill. The new way says no anger and no contempt. Okay? Next one, please. So anger is the issue. What happens then when anger is not dealt with? And Jesus is basically starting by saying anger is the heart. Anger is the problem. Anger is the issue. And this is, don't forget, we're talking about the Son of God here who knows how to prepare a sermon. He knows our lives. He knows our culture. He knows our society. He knows people very well. And so he's dealing with the issues very strategic. And of course, anybody who, theologians and psych- psychiatrists and psychologists today, scientists, would all agree that, you know, anger is just a normal human emotion. So we'll start with that. Like any other emotion, it's just a human emotion. And in itself isn't right or wrong. You might hear people say that, you know, righteous anger. Like Paul would talk about, be angry, but do not sin. Okay, so there's the emotional side of it. However, to say righteous anger it isn't also license to actually be a tyrant, if that makes any sense to you. Anger is to protect, it isn't to offend. But here I put a definition offered by Dallas Willard. He says it's a feeling that seizes us in our body and immediately impels us towards interfering with and possibly even harming. Those who have thwarted—I love that word—thwarted. It's a good D and D term. Thwarted our will and interfered with our life. So there's the basic idea. It's kind of like a, a protective mechanism, if you will. And it's all about the will. We, again, we we all agree that God given us a human will, and the problem with the will is it causes sin because of disobedience. But also. With that will, there are certain things that we want to achieve with our lives. And, with the, who, you know, and, and if something gets in the way, we get angry. And that's basically what's being said here. That emotion is the feeling that happens when something gets in the way. So here's the problem, though. The problem is that when, we, when, when it's not dealt with, it is very destructive. And can lead to a lifelong passive-aggressive behavior. Now, um, I'm just so happy reading this book here called How to Really Love Your Child by Dr. Ross Campbell. And no, that's not Ross. Imagine him having a child of six gosh, not even that, four months old and already writing a book about how to love his child. No, it's a different fellow from a long time ago. Uh, but it's funny because we're dealing with anger and he deals with anger as well. And so I think for parents, I thought maybe reading a portion of this not only applies to the scriptures, but also might be a bit helpful for, for, for understanding children and, uh, and whatnot. So I'm going to read that, but on the bottom here, if you look at it, um, These are some of the key terms that comes out in this passage. You know, passive-aggressive anger is an expression, or actually passive-aggressive behavior is an expression of anger. It's indirect retaliation. And examples of it are stubbornness, procrastination, forgetfulness. It comes across as being cunning, self-defeating, and even destructive. So let me read it as we think about it, because I think this informs our study really well. Because even as adults, even though this is about parents dealing with children, I think a lot of us as adults still, and he is suggested here that that if not dealt with the the anger, uh, he he, he describes anger as like a a kettle that's boiling over, that steam needs to be released. But if it's capped and if it's suppressed, this is what's birthed, passive-aggressive behavior. It needs to get out somehow. So it comes out kind of passively, but yet aggressively. Um, And that's the problem, so I think, and if it is a lifelong habit that can be built and that can be created, we all need to learn from this, not just how we parent our children and how children deal with anger, but also we as adults, how we deal with our anger, because we all deal with it. Why why, why do I know we deal with it? Because, again, anger is a normal human emotion, okay, so we all have to deal with it, it's how you deal with it was the issue. So this is what he starts with, by saying, why is this so destructive, this passive-aggressive behavior? Because as pointed out, the anger eventually must come out some way. If suppressed too much, the anger will come out as passive-aggressive behavior. Uh, Passive-aggressive behavior is basically unconscious. So a lot of times people don't even know they're doing it. It just kind of comes out subtly. Um, And it's all about (laughs) anti-authority, So, I can even see that in my own life, along my children's lives. It is an unconscious motivation on the part of the child to upset authority figures, parents and teachers, um, by doing the opposite of what is expected of them. One passive-aggressive feature uh, starts influencing a child's behavior. Discipline becomes a nightmare. Of course, when we talk about discipline, you're talking about correcting a child's behavior in the way they live, not punishing them. Passive-aggressive behavior, the opposite of an open, honest, direct, and verbal expression of anger. So what we're looking to achieve with ourselves, and what Jesus, I think, wants us to deal with, is when anger happens, to deal with it openly, honestly, directly, and with a verbal expression that is intelligent and, and, and beneficial. Uh, so, so this passive-aggressive behavior is the opposite of that is an expression of anger that gets back at a person indirectly. A few simple examples of this are procrastination, dawdling, stubbornness, intentional inefficiency, and forgetfulness. The subconscious purpose of passive-aggressive behavior is to upset the parent or authority figure and cause anger. Passive-aggressive ways of handling anger are indirect, cunning, self-defeating, and destructive. So I personally think Jesus, as the Son of God, sees these people. And they see probably sees and understands their anger. Because for a lot of these people, they're, 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 they've been wronged so much that there's a fair amount of anger going on in their lives. And, and as the part of the healing ministry of Jesus, he's probably psh, just basically letting the steam out. That's probably a big part of it. Just a touch from somebody who loves you is a big, loving, practical, Thing that, can, that we can do for one another To just alleviate the pressure of anger and frustration And so he sees it And he starts by dealing with it Because it's very, very important So let's look at anger Because he deals with three issues After the murder Which we're not even going to have to deal with Because we won't talk about the character and the heart And that's anger Which is orge Which we talked about before That's where we get the word ogre from Raka um, and then you fool. Those are the three elements he deals with of anger. If we could have the next slide, please. So first we have, actually it's orgizo, the angry ogre. That's the word we see for anger um, without control. It's just a lifestyle. Just let Anger out of control becomes an ogre. And there he is right there with a the big giant spiky mace or club of some sort. And here's his bio. And this I, again, took from Dallas Wellerts. All our mental and emotional resources are marshaled to nurture and tend the anger. A lot of energy goes. I mean, that's what I like about love. Love is pure, it's simple, it's direct. But as soon as anger starts to happen, because and I guess it's a natural thing, but not dealt with, not expelled properly, it starts to become a burden and stacks on your shoulder. And it's hard to love when you have all this weight on your shoulder. Because it takes a lot of energy, a lot of resources. And so, again, it's it's a mental-emotional resource are marshaled into nurture and tend the anger, and our body throbs with it. Energy is dedicated to keeping the anger alive. We constantly remind ourselves of how wrongly we have been treated. And when it's allowed to govern our actions, of course, its evil is quickly multiplied in heart-rending consequences and in the replication of anger and rage in the hearts and bodies of everyone it touches. So it truly is a beast that eats off of us, our resources, our energy. And it also breeds itself. So it starts to give birth to little babies. And that's the progression. Anger comes in. When not dealt with it, it starts to have children. And so the, the father, Orgizio, gives birth to Raka. The good for nothing. Now, I was looking for images because raka is a sound when, made to, when to get phlegm out of your throat, into your mouth, to spit out. Disgusting, gross. But now, looking at somebody spit is really disgusting, isn't it? So that's why when I went to go find images of somebody spitting, they were really disgusting. And it kind of bothered me, so I just put that little block figure of a man spitting because I didn't want to gross anybody out more than I have to. But that's what the idea of raka comes from. It's the idea of just and, it, and, it, and it's, and it's that, that, that Expelling, that worthless gunk That nobody wants, nobody wants to see And it's just disgusting That's the idea in your mind Towards a person whom you have unresolved anger about So you see it's starting to progress Or digress if you will And so after anger is not dealt with And that pressure It starts to get worsened and worse and and Comes raka This feeling towards people That they're good for nothing He's worse than his father in full contempt, which is the attitude, this is the definition of contempt, by the way, which is the attitude or feeling of a person towards, uh, wait, attitude or feeling of a person towards a person or thing that he considers worthless or despicable. Again, you're just like the phlegm in my throat I'm trying to expel. Contemptuous actions and attitudes are a knife in the heart that permanently harms And mutilates people's souls. What an interesting term I I found there. This is from C.S. Lewis. He comments that in all men's lives, at certain periods, and in many men's lives at all periods, between, you know, infancy when you're a baby, to extreme old age, where I'm just about. One of the most dominant elements is the desire to be inside the local, we call it a local ring, is to be belonged, to be a part of something, to, to be accepted. And the terror of being left outside. The reason why I put that quote there is because that's what contempt does. It excludes people from your inner circle. So name-calling is a big part of that. And so the raka is like a name-calling. You know, it's like somebody does something you don't like, you're angry. So what do you do? You push them out. You don't love them. And, and restore, which we ought to do, which is what Jesus is going to suggest that we do do. Instead, we push, and we say this person's not fit for our society. So we push him, and we push him, and this breaks the soul. This kills a person. So we see how murder is t- connected to what Jesus is teaching us. This angry ogre becomes contempt, and, and imagine, it'd probably be better off just killing it over with, as opposed to keep... Making me live a life outside and pushed out and ostracized and just it just, you know, it, it breaks the soul. And of course there's a third most disgusting, most vile monster that Jesus is gonna deal with, which is the which he calls the one who says, You fool. And let's look at him next. But the meanest and ugliest monster of all is Moros the Brutal. He is a brutal mix. He's full of freezing contempt and he's uh, in withering anger. So this is when anger and contempt finally broods and this becomes a person's way of life. They're verbally expressed. They're mentally out of the hearts, the Bible says, the mouth speaks. And look, at what, is what he's dealing with is how people speak to other people. To say you fool in today's culture doesn't mean much and nothing. Uh, But what Jesus was saying here was pretty shocking, actually, to his listeners. In fact, if we were to use some of the words that that would properly translate this today, a lot of self-righteous people would be very upset and uncomfortable about it. But don't forget, this is Jesus, the Son of God, speaking with our people, and knowing how they speak to each other, and knowing how they think about each other. And he's getting right to the heart. Again, these words to translate it properly, instead of using this kind of archaic term, you fool, which again is something that we can say to each other. Oh, you're being silly. You're being a jester. You're being a fool. It's. I mean, I've, one time, legalistically, some lady in our church, when I was a kid, said, you know, the Bible says if you say you fool to somebody, you'll be, you're going to hell. Ah! I was tortured by it. Why? Because she was totally misinterpreted the scriptures. I was a, this a little kid who was just being silly and called, oh, you're being foolish. Ah! Oh, and she twisted it. I'm sure she was well-intentioned, but the problem is well-intentioned people make a lot of mistakes. The reality is what he's saying here is a lot stronger than just a hocus-pocus word that some kid foolishly throws out. It's the idea, again, better translated to say something along the lines of those words we see on the screen there. You bast, or you effing jerk. That is what basically Jesus was saying in front of his people. When he says, you fool, the words translate, moros would be like saying these words. And so I can see people going like this whoa, Jesus, come on, <laughs> steady on, steady on, Jesus. But the thing is, though, they're all looking around each other saying, well, that's how we treat each other, though, isn't it? Uh, next slide. And so, stop your phony worship. That's my, my alter ego there playing the cowbell. It's kind of hard to see. <laughs> and make a reconciliation. So the thing is, When we go to worship God, we need to come with a heart and character of God. And that's what he's going to recommend in verses 23, as we read down here on the bottom here, or in your Bibles. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift Okay? This is, he was going to give us two illustrations. Here's the first illustration. You're worshiping God. And it's a, quite an important thing. Don't forget in the Hebrew mentality, to bring an offering is a mega ceremony. It's not as easy as us walking about filling up our coffee cups and singing God, you know, and, and having kind of more of a free, liberal experience of worship. This is a very serious, it's almost like you're getting married or you're getting baptized. You're already a donkey in the water and you say, hold on. Hold on, I, there's somebody up the road I need who, who's angry at me. I need to go deal with this right now. And so you up and leave. And everybody's like, whoa, what's going on here? The point, he's making a strong point here. The most important day of your life, say your wedding, you're, you got the white dress on, you walk up the aisle, all of a sudden you stop. I love you, honey, but I need to do something real quick. And you run out, and all your guests, and you come back two hours later. Okay, whew, everything's fine, let's go. It's urgent, it's more urgent to... Deal with lovingly the situation then it is the most important thing that you can do either religiously, professionally, anything. That's the point he's trying to make here. And look at this. When I first read this verse, for the longest time, I've always kind of thought and wrongly assumed that what he's saying here is if you're angry with somebody, stop it and go deal with it. But no. So putting up phony worship might actually be wrong. You could actually put genuine worship. You might be 100% right. In fact, let's assume you're 100% good with God. Your worship is pure. Your heart is right. You did not sin against anyone. You're totally 100% pure and right and good, and your worship is is, is there. But during your worship service, it comes to your mind that somebody else has an anger problem. Okay? Read it again and verify this with me. If you're at the altar and, and they remember, it comes to your mind, that your brother has something against you. See, it's something about you being angry with somebody. It has something, So, the, the idea we're learning here isn't to curb your own anger. What you're learning here is love. Love so much because of what we learned about anger... That we actually will have a heart of compassion against those who have anger. Because this person who you are—it's coming to your mind has this anger. You're the object of the anger, even though they might be completely wrong about it. Think about it. You may have said something or did something that was misunderstood. Now they're angry with you. You're fine, but because you're a Christian and you have a loving character like God, this is, again, isn't about laws. This is about character. And and you're worshiping God and you're just on your knees and you're just fully open before you and God and God speaks to you because you're open to him. (laughs) You know? And he goes, listen, you said something a couple weeks back and somebody's brewing over it and the anger is building and building. The ogre is taking over. It's consuming this person. Because you're a Christian and you have the heart of God, you love people. Think about God for a second there. God so loved the world. God's worship God's purity, God's character is totally pure and good and holy. But yet he stopped what he was doing, whatever he was doing up in heavens, as he sent his son to come live and to die. Why? To reconcile man to him. That's God's character. That's God's heart. Jesus is teaching us God's character and God's heart. And he says, you guys are blessed because now this is your character and this is your heart. So, we're not thinking about our own offenses and our own anger. We're thinking of other people's offenses and other people's anger. How can I stop what I'm doing here? This important day, this family day, this business day, this church day. How can I stop and go and deal with that person for their benefit? Has nothing to do with me gaining anything. It's for their benefit because if this is not dealt with, that person's going to live a life of hell. As this ogre is sitting on their shoulder, turning into contempt. Turning into, eventually, moros. And as we see this person dissolve and degrade before us, we can't have that. We can't have that. And then here we are, self-righteous, worshiping God as this person is on the other side of town or down the road, literally melting morally. We need to stop this. So we, This is called ministry, guys. This is called care. This is called love. So we stop. We go out and we deal with this person. We might be, again, 100% right, but it doesn't matter. We go and we reconcile. Now, this is pretty powerful scriptures here I'm, I'm reading. I don't know if you guys agree with this or not, but this is powerful. And reading this again and studying it, seeing this, these, these various, very clever, constructive words that Jesus is putting together is shocking. The second illustration, and we'll end with a second sl- illustration. It's still the same slide, though, Gary. It says this in verse 25. Yeah, now where's the saddle? Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge. And the judge may hand you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Again, you're as right as rice. You're going to court. Somebody's wrongly accused you, they're wrongly um, suing you, taking you to court. But he says this, you might be right, and you might be confident about being right, but there's a chance that as you sit before court, the evidence will pop against you, and you'll be locked away or have to pay a fine, as we see here. What is wiser? What is better? What is even more loving in God's character is to try to reconcile outside of court. Now here, he's, again, he's not making a law. He's not saying we shouldn't go to court, because it might be necessary. But what he's saying here is this, can you not work it out? And also, walk with your adversary. The idea of walking with your adversary is, is, is trying to come and stand in his shoes and see things from his perspective. Reconcile. Why? Because it's a whole lot better to reconcile outside of court than it is to go to court as enemies, to fight it out, and to have the risk of losing. He's not saying necessarily that we might lose, but he says it's a chance that you maybe hand it over to the judge and, and lose. And they have to either spend time in jail or pay a huge fine. Again, it's wisdom, and it's also God's heart. God's heart is that we reconcile not only with our brothers and sisters in Christ and our family members and our friends, but it's God's heart that we make friends, we make peace with our adversary. Another word for adversary is our enemies, just again like God did with us. Once again, the Bible is very clear when it says that when we were enemies of God, then he reconciled us, then he sent his son to die on the cross for our place. So, our brothers, our families, even even with our enemies, we need to show love. Why? Again, they need minister to. This person, who's our adversary, our enemy, has anger stacked upon their shoulder. They have this beast that's crushing their soul. We are ministers. We are different. We are disciples of Christ. We put on the heart and the character of God because we are blessed to know God. We are blessed to be a part of the kingdom of God. We're blessed. We see things a bit differently now. We walk away. We walk away. That's a lot different. And so because of this, we need to be salt. We need to be light. And this is everyday practical advice from Jesus on how we can be salt and light. Don't you see, guys, how different this is from soap operas? (laughs) You know, think about this. This is completely anti-cultural. You guys want to be you know, countercultural type of people. Well, you come to the right place. To be before Christ is to be completely and totally, utterly countercultural, because this is not the way our society runs. But this is the way how we are called to be as Christians, and we can be that way. We have the power to be that way. We have the freedom, and also, don't you guys just by thinking about this feel a bit relieved? Just to think how pure, how lovely, how direct, how innocent, how honest is love. All this other stuff is just stressful.